The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. President Biden insists the U.S. is not trying to hurt China and is focused on getting the relationship right. Amid reports Beijing tried to challenge Washington's 2026 presidency of the G20. What this trip is about, it was less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China. The G20 communique faces criticism for watering down its condemnation of Russia. While the US, EU, India and Saudi Arabia strike an infrastructure deal in a blow to Beijing's push for influence over the global south. It's very important in a world where we learned from COVID and the war that supply chains need to be reinforced, they need to be diversified, that connectivity matters tremendously. The Chinese economy exits consumer price deflation in the month of August as CPI ekes out a marginal gain, but prices at the factory gate continue to tumble, with PPI falling 3% on the year. An arm reportedly considering raising the price range on its highly anticipated IPO, that's due later this week, amid reports the chipmaker's listing is up to six times oversubscribed. Meanwhile, at least 2,000 people have been killed and many more are feared dead as Morocco is hit by the deadliest earthquake in 60 years. U.S. President Joe Biden says he is not trying to hurt or contain China and wants to get the relationship right. Biden, who is in Vietnam, said he wants to build ties in Asia and warned he will not sell material to China if it threatens stability in the region. On Sunday, Biden sealed a deal with Vietnam on semiconductors and materials or minerals, while Hanoi lifted the U.S. to its highest diplomatic status alongside China and Russia. G20 nations failed to explicitly condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine in their joint declaration. Member states agreed to refrain from the use of force to acquire territories and agreed that the use or the threat of nuclear weapons was, quote, inadmissible. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, whose country hosted the G20 summit over the weekend, held the summit as the most ambitious in the history of G20, with a joint declaration on debt resolution, climate financing and economic development in the global south. G20 nations also expressed their support for a bigger role for multilateral lenders such as the World Bank and IMF. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi called for the expansion of the World Bank's mandate, while IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva asked for an increase in the fund's resources. Meanwhile, in an exclusive interview with CNBC, the president of World Bank, AJ Abanga, has said that multiple countries had their say in the bank's operations despite wider geopolitical tensions. China is actually a big shareholder in the bank and has been a very consistent partner. And in fact, we met the Chinese Premier and the Finance Minister today. So they're very much a part of the solution for the bank. 
The banks is a multilateral institution. Of course, the U.S. and parts of Europe are large shareholders, but so are Japan, China, India is getting larger. So this is a different thing. I'm not. I don't believe that the bank is an instrument in an either-or situation. I think there are definite geopolitical issues in the world. We know those, but the bank's trying to find a way to not get into that but actually focus on this idea of poverty and livable planet. But does that mean that you would be attending the BRI summit as well uh, next month, where you know, you're talking about 90 countries being in attendance, President Putin meeting uh, President Xi? And, you know, the foreign ministry in China has actually said that in the last 10 years, they've worked on 3,000 cooperation projects and galvanized nearly $1 trillion of investment. I mean... So the World Bank is a very low role to play at BRI, so I don't plan to be there. But I will go to China sometime next year at one of their, for example, they have the China Development Forum. I plan to be there. So you shouldn't read any message into whether I'm at this event or that event. <laughs> I'm very clear that China is very much a shareholder and very much a constructive partner in our work, as are many other countries. Let's get out to Martin Sung, who's been leading our coverage from New Delhi. Marty, the bar was so low for this G20, so it is astonishing that anything was achieved. And we did see some consensus around the language, at least with the aggression around Russia, this around uh, trying to ensure that there's no further uh, aggression globally at this point. However, not exactly condemning the war. So that was key. But this is also instrumental as we talk about a block that will be expanding from 20 to 21. Indeed, you're, it's going to include the African Union, the AU. So from next year, it becomes the G21. And we'll have to, I guess, uh, deal with that when that happens. Uh, but Karen, very quickly, uh, you know, you were uh, watching uh, Tadre's interview with uh, Ajay Bagra, the uh, new-ish head of uh, the World Bank. And we also sat down and talked to uh, the managing director of the IMF, Kristalina Gorgieva. We'll roll that tape in just a while. But before that, though, I want to update you on the situation behind me. We are here in the capital of New Delhi, near Parliament. You've got a complex of the government buildings behind me and just about 15 minutes ago we had a roaring motorcade rumbling by uh, carrying Mohammed bin Sultan the crown prince of Saudi Arabia who is staying on he was here for the G20 summit but is staying on uh, for a state visit he was heading uh, over that direction to meet with the uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi shortly after that we heard uh, the thundering thunder of uh, uh, gun salutes cannon salutes so this is quite a big deal in fact this is only Saudi Arabia's second state visit to India since 2019 and the importance or significance of this is we are waiting to hear official confirmation of a deal a cooperation pact on energy to be announced we understand sometime later today between India and Saudi Arabia which is going to include cooperation on renewables as well as at some point in the future connecting their two power grids this is interesting via undersea cables a series of undersea cables so india and saudi arabia connecting their power grids and uh, this is significant i think uh, on the back of the last two years or so since uh, india was able to buy heavily discounted russian oil uh, after the G7 capped the price of oil, uh, Russian oil there. So just wanted to update you on that situation. Back to uh, the G20 summit and uh, reaction to it. You know, one of the big uh, talking points was how the leader's uh, statement, the final, uh, joint final communique, talked about beefing up the capacity of both the World Bank, whom you just heard from, as well as the IMF. So we sat down and talked with uh, Kristalina Gorgieva, the MD, Managing Director of the IMF, about how both institutions, both K 
key Bretton Woods institutions, started all the way back in 1944, have morphed, have changed, and how similar they've become, but yet how distinct they remain. Take a listen. I'm pleased to say the Indian presidency delivered on the pledges for $100 billion on lending of SDRs that were made during the Italian uh, presidency. Now we can say we are even slightly exceeding this uh, $100 uh, billion. And uh, that means more concessional financing for low-income countries, more concessional financing for vulnerable middle-income countries. Uh, I particularly value two aspects of the work that are significant. Crypto. Putting a roadmap for regulation that is coordinated globally on crypto is a very important achievement. Okay. We need to move fast. Uh, together with uh, uh, FSB, the IMF proposed that roadmap. And I can tell you, uh, every day that passes, we are not walking on, on, on that road, uh, is uh, a day we should not lose. Uh, the second uh, area where there has been uh, uh, remarkable progress is on debt. Uh, India, together with the IMF and, and uh, the World Bank, uh, is co-chairing the Global Sovereign Debt Roundtable. It is making progress on identifying and resolving concerns of different lenders and also concerns of the uh, borrowing countries. Remember, the world has changed. The, the uh, horizon of how many different lenders there are and different conditions they provide their, uh, their resources, it's much, much broader than it was even 10 years ago. Finally, India, together with us, brought around the table the traditional lenders, sovereign lenders, uh, the Paris Club, the new lenders, China, Saudi Arabia, India, Brazil, the private sector represented with, by big institutions and by organizations, and the borrowers. We need this conversation because if we don't have it, we have no solutions. And the debt problem is very pressing. We now have more than half of the, of the low-income countries either in or close to debt distress. 25% of debt of emerging markets is trading in, in distressed uh, uh, territory. We have, to, we have to act. On the sidelines, I think uh, one of the unexpected byproducts of this summit was the announcement of the India-MEA-EU economic corridor. So access by sea, by rail, uh, etc. How important is that? It is very important in a world where we learned from COVID and the war that supply chains need to be reinforced, they need to be diversified, that connectivity matters tremendously. The more there, there is an investment in infrastructure and connectivity, the more there is a platform for trade among nations, the better for the countries involved, but also for the world economy, because expansion of transportation links, communication links, and trade has positive spillovers. What we see today is very uh, troubling. There is fragmentation in our world. 
for the first time, global trade grows slower than the global economy. 2% trade, 3% global growth. If we want trade to re become again an engine of growth, yeah. then we have to create corridors and opportunities. What is important is to do it for the benefit of everybody and not for exclusion of others. And in that sense, I would encourage all countries working co collaboratively with each other to do so with the spirit of integrated global economy. So the head of the IMF there, the managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, lauding the benefits of this new uh, plan, this economic corridor connecting India through the Middle East to the EU, which theoretically should actually increase trade between the two endpoints by a factor of uh, four. And before that, of course, talking about increasing the capacity and the resources of both the IMF as well as the World Bank. Now that, as well as a lot of other issues, uh, the progress made, all spelled out in the final uh, statement, uh, joint communique, Karen, uh, getting us back to about that and that's what you uh, wanted to, to, to really talk about I think so it included progress apparently in the language uh, in several different areas in terms of crypto regulation in terms of climate change in terms of debt restructuring debt sustainability but here's the thing and connecting this to what you were asking about the, their joint position consensus uh, position on Ukraine uh, there seems to have been a lowest common denominator approach taken to the language uh, in the sense that, remember, all the verticals I just talked about, whether it's climate or crypto or debt sustainability, etc., through the entire series of G20 meetings leading up to the summit, they had not been able to get unanimity, no consensus, no agreement. Not all were on board, especially Russia and China. So you have to wonder how much were the expectations and also the progress, how much was that watered down in order to get China and Russia to sign off on this document, which, of course, shows uh, basically cohesiveness. There's been a lot of criticism that uh, the G20's time has, has passed, and there's just way too much, uh, I guess, fractionalism in, in that group. But uh, they did a fairly good job in terms of presenting a united front, at least for this summit, at least in this document, in the wording. Back to you. Muddy, the geopolitics here reshaping the global map and one player that stands out also a winner from G20, not just India on the back of hosting the event in the global south, but Vietnam was somewhat pivotal to an upgrade to the relationship between Washington and Hanoi. What was fascinating here, the Americans are rolling out a red carpet of US executives, pivotal companies at this point too, around artificial intelligence, the likes of Google, Intel, Marvel, uh, global foundries, all visiting executives there and it seems as though there is a huge pool of funds for the Vietnamese to tap what a hundred million dollars a year for five years available under the CHIPS Act. Just how key do you think Vietnam is going to be on the back of this around semiconductors and rare earths given that uh, the Americans are now concerned around diversification around semiconductors? Yeah. Yeah, and of course, de-risking supply chains away from over-dependence on China is, I guess, uh, uh, the key point there, Karen. Uh, on the critical uh, minerals part, we don't have enough information yet. As far as chips go, uh, I'm sure you've been following the story as well from your end in London. Big names like Intel are there, Marvell uh, as well. And what the U.S. is looking 
at Vietnam 4 is to provide, I guess it would be the lower end of the value chain in terms of chip manufacturing because of their skills, capacity and labor and land and resources, etc. They're in a prime position to take up the slack in terms of chip packaging, chip, test, chip testing as well. So that's what the U.S. is looking at Vietnam for, that part of the chip uh, supply chain. Now, uh, there were a lot of other senior U.S. business executives along with Biden uh, in Hanoi, including Boeing. And I'm sure you've seen the report, massive, massive order signed for 50 uh, Boeing 737 MAX aircraft at $7.5 billion. That is the price tag. So, you know, it's not just uh, India, which is the favored or most favored plus one in everybody's China's plus one strategy. Vietnam is uh, coming a, a close second as well. Their demographics almost mirror India's. Very young first workforce, very literate, very well educated as well. And uh, skilled, though, uh, but still uh, in, in totality, still a much lower uh, cost base uh, compared to China, where wages have been rising and costs have been rising and where obviously a lot of Western companies do not want to concentrate too much of their supply chain because of the geopolitics, of course. Back to you. Marty, thank you very much for bringing us the coverage from the weekend. Much appreciated. I just want to pick up on some of these points around Vietnam. I think it's fascinating. The Russians obviously very active in that relationship with yep. Vietnam over the long term. And uh, this arms arrangement and arms supply deal that has been in place uh, potentially around a credit facility that Russia would extend to Vietnam to buy some of these uh, heavy weapons. And of course, counteractive to that now, the American position and coming in with uh, potentially a large check around semiconductors. The tension is very evident here in parts of the world that the Americans want to do business with and where there have been other relationships that have been dominant in the past. I mean, where does the Chinese and Russian relationship then stand with Vietnam? If the Americans are going to be very active on the ground now, stepping up manufacturing and also around these key areas. For me, it um, highlights a different story that you and I have been talking about a lot off camera, mm -hmm. the role of the African Union here and what yeah. plays out across the continent because we know the Russians have been very active on the ground in some areas and so too have the Chinese. So it feels like this was almost demonstrated around the Vietnam story over the weekend about the pivotal role they could play. But will they be forced to choose a side down the track? Yeah, they probably, I mean, if you look at, at, at how the relations are sort of looking right now, especially with what looks in a way as the U.S. trying to play a little bit of catch-up because of all these relationships having already been made by the uh, Russians and Chinese, uh, particularly in those emerging market spaces like Vietnam, for ex example, as well. Now the U.S. having said that they're, they actually are committed to the developing nations, having had quite a few years where perhaps they didn't look at those relationships as much, really focusing inward more, um, then uh, this kind of gives you a clear indication that they're going to have to invest a whole lot more in those regions and, and, and shore up a lot of those partnerships. And this is exactly what Joe Biden was trying to do. And in many ways, even offer an alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative then by China as well, with uh, increased infrastructure uh, moves that they've actually announced as well during this this summit as well. So I think there's there's certainly a lot of catch up. I think that the U.S. is is trying to play here. If I can throw another layer in here, what happens to human rights? And don't forget, yeah. a lot of business with emerging markets in recent years has been thwarted by the position on human rights, which was very different to how a lot of Western nations feel the the position should be at. Mm -hmm. And if you look at uh, the uh, Vietnam story, it's been a controversial problem. Uh, Hanoi has been criticised in the past for jailing activists uh, for, for limiting freedom of expression. Will this be somewhat overlooked or will there be a very strong arm um, negotiation behind the scenes to lift human rights or the approach to human rights? Or will in this era of geopolitical uh, tensions and a war playing out, 
will that be seen as something that is pushed aside for the greater picture around solving uh, solving a war? So just big questions, I think, as we, we bring in other countries to yeah. a wider and discussion. this is why with MBS also staying behind, what is also what does that also mean for, for that global uh, you know, human rights perspective that we've continued to, to be speaking about too. So I think even even more that conversation will also be one to look out for. Yeah, it's a big part of the ES, don't forget, uh, in the ESG, yeah. uh, as we talk about corporations trying to improve all of these different aspects. Yeah. If they're doing more business on the ground, and I mentioned the whole string of American companies, so they're doing more business on the ground in places, say, like Vietnam, if yeah. there's a human rights issue, how does that uh, impact their S rating on the ESG metric? Mm. We're going to park that G20 conversation there, but coming up on the show, we take a look ahead of what is set to be the biggest IPO of the year as Arm reportedly considers pricing above the range. Plus, we'll bring you more from our coverage of the G20 summit in Delhi, including an exclusive conversation with the ILO Director General Gilbert Hongbo. And G4S Executive Chairman Ashley Almanza will be joining us to discuss the security risks facing countries around the world. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back to Scorebox Europe Daily. Here's your first look at the market picture this hour. And really what has been a keen focus thus far has, yes, been Apple on one side, of course, which we'll unpack. But really Fed hike worries. Where to from here when it comes to those interest rates? Of course, this week becomes quite, uh, quite synonymous with that data. CPI numbers on Wednesday, PPI data as well on Thursday. So some key inflationary numbers. To kind of peg the market back into but last week friday we did see the we did see wall street close just marginally higher across uh, across the board here the s p edging up and even snapping what was a three-day losing streak on that front the nasdaq also breaking a four-day uh, losing streak even if it is only marginal uh, on that point on that part still 13761 there there is the key question whether the s p 500 will hit that 4500 mark and actually remain there is that still a key target for a lot of investors at this point? Just up around a tenth of a percent then by the trading picture uh, last week. The energy sector climbing a little bit more than the rest of the market. That is, of course, on the back of energy stocks really moving a little bit higher, particularly oil, of course, which will also get into on the back of Saudi Arabia and Russia having extended their supply cuts uh, out on that side. Brent crude oil, of course, above $90 a barrel. We'll touch on all of that. But keenly, that energy sector was the one really in focus. ExxonMobil, even ConocoPhillips up more than 1% each as well in that trading picture. Across the whole week then, uh, what we really saw was the Nasdaq down almost 2% last week. So even though we ended more positively, we actually on the week had uh, quite a lot of negativity. As I said, the Nasdaq near that 2% loss. The S&P 500 as well, losing one and a third of a percent uh, by the closing picture for the 
whole of that week then on to the dollar crosses very quickly here then um, the dollar index was up around eight tenths of a percent week to date last week it was that eighth positive week in a row for the dollar that is its longest run of positivity since 2014 then uh, for the dollar there. So you did see some strength really filter through into that picture. The yen even strengthening then. And this one is of key notice because the Bank of Japan's uh, governor, uh, Kazuo Ueda, actually raised hopes of moving away from negative rates, even saying that by the end of this year, it is not improbable to have enough data to perhaps move away from those negative rates as perhaps then Japan gets closer to that 2% inflation target, uh, as it were. 146.05 is where we are uh, for now, but it had even reached 146.86 at some point. Of course, the wage increases there uh, will be very important to the unwinding of those negative rates uh, out of Japan. Then uh, the dollar edge broadly lower, however, uh, today distancing itself, however, against those levels that it did reach last week against the euro and the pound, 125 and 107 then against the sterling and the euro respectively. Onto the commodities board then, WTI and Brent crude oil, these have been significant to watch following Russia and Saudi Arabia extending those supply cuts. $90 a barrel, still the mark we're seeing there. Question marks are on WTI. If that hits $90 a barrel, what does that mean for price pressures out to the United States? in future terms. So that will be keen, uh, keenly watched for now, however, dipping uh, ever so slightly lower. Uh, 87.15 for now, WTI crude is where that currently stands across that market. Uh, both contracts gained over the past two weeks though. Brent settling, settling still on its highest mark since November. That was last week, Friday. The Asian markets, uh, we've made note of, uh, of course, what has come out of the Bank of Japan in particular. Asian markets, however, softer ahead of that U.S. CPI print, which we'll, we'll, we will certainly look out for. The Nikkei, a half a percent weaker, seven-tenths of a percent down, though, for the Hang Seng out in Hong Kong. Very interesting to note as well out of China. We are seeing that the financial regulator out on that side of the world has reduced the risk weighting then. Of, that is attached to insurance companies' holdings of blue chips as well as tech stocks, meaning they're hoping to get a little bit more investment into what was the laggard counters then out of China. So the CSI 300 had a risk weighting of around 0.35. That's now been dropped off to 0.3, while the tech-focused star was 0.45. That's dropped off to 0.4. So perhaps a little bit more money might go into those Chinese markets at present. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.